really all the best things in our lives compound with time and patience being crucial. Good health does that. Investments do that. Most importantly, love does that. Uh, Generosity does that. In all of those things, they're nice, they work, they're helpful. And then if you keep at it long enough and carefully enough, it suddenly explodes into something truly wonderful. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast, where we seek advice to help us lead wealthier lives and extend success to a wider community. And now, your hosts, Jonathan Dio and Terry Schauer. Bob Seawright is one of the original financial bloggers, having started Above the Market in 2011, before it was cool to have a financial blog. As a financial philosopher, he has perfected the long-form financial writing and does a better job of integrating culture into the financial world than anybody. Bob is the Chief Investment and Information Officer for Madison Avenue Securities and has some important things to say about wealth in our society. He talks about the importance of knowing your purpose and of integrating those external markers of and the internal drive for success and recognizing the predominant place luck plays in all of our outcomes. By doing this, Bob says we embrace humility, we acknowledge our cognitive and emotional biases, and we remember that wealth per se is neither good nor bad. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Bob Seawright. I'm really excited today. Um, I've known Bob Seawright. I haven't known Bob Seawright, but I've read Bob Seawright for about over a decade now. He is the Chief Investment and Information Officer for Madison Avenue Securities, LLC, in San Diego, California. And in 2014, the Wall Street Journal published a list of the 15 smart people for investors to follow. And he's on the list with none other than Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, William Bernstein. Now, I need to get this out of the way right up right up at the top, because um, there are three financial writers that I read everything they do. Jason Zweig, Morgan Housel, and Bob Seawright. So I'm really excited to have you on today. I've been, you know, I've been reading Above the Market for over a decade. I think I started reading it in 2012. I think you started it maybe the year before then. And uh, if you add to that the better letter, I think you're the king of long form financial writing. Um, but the best part is you make it fun. Like you make it digestible. You bring in pop culture and music references every single week. And I don't know how you, how you get those huge long pieces out there. It's pretty incredible. So um, your writing is found everywhere, all over the web. You end up on every best of list. You uh, took the time to write a nice blurb for my book, and I never got a chance to thank you for that publicly. So, thank you. Uh, and I, I know, I know you write about. I know what you write about. I know I, I, uh, I introduced Terry to the Better Letter, so she's read a little bit as well. Um, but none of our listeners necessarily know. So let's uh, tell us in your own words a little bit of your path uh, professionally and your writing. Sure, um, and thank you for those excessively kind words. Um, I, I went to school to become a lawyer and I practiced law for 10 years 
and I hated it. Um, I, I did litigation about half the time. I did deals about half the time. Uh, if you think reading prospectuses are a lousy way to spend your time, writing them is worse. Uh, so on a, on a cold uh, January evening, uh, I, was, I was returning from a uh, charity meeting. I, I was on the board of a charity uh, with a good buddy of mine uh, who worked on Wall Street. And he knew I was frustrated. I was going in on the 615 train to New York City in the morning and I was coming home on the 1150 at night. Um, I took half a day off on Christmas. It was awful. Um, and it would have been awful if I had liked the work and I didn't like the work. And he said, why don't you come to work with me on the street? And I thought about it about a nanosecond. And uh, despite no particularized training or experience, uh, I went to work on a Wall Street trading floor very quickly thereafter. Uh, and I've been, that was 1992. Uh, and I've been in the finance world uh, ever since. Uh, I started writing above the market, as you said, Jonathan, about 10 years ago. Um, and then uh, a little over a year ago, partly because of COVID, and I had a little more time, uh, you know, and my, and my wife was already thinking I was spending too much time working. So uh, I decided to write uh, a newsletter, partly because I, I wanted to put something out uh, regularly, but mostly because I wanted to expand the scope of what I talked about. Uh, uh, you mentioned Jason's wife, and Jason has said to me, and, and he's written it publicly, that uh, he writes the same, I think it's 14 columns over and over, with different fact patterns and in, in different contexts. And, um, you know, after 10 years and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of posts, uh, I, I, was, I was ready to broaden the scope a little bit. I still write a lot about finance, um, but that's not all I write about. And so far, so good. Um, I think the response has been pretty positive. Um, you know, obviously, uh, well, lots of folks are getting rich on Substack. I don't charge, so I'm not getting rich, but I also don't have uh, 25,000 subscribers either. Um, Yet. But, but I do have loyal subscribers and readers, and I'm grateful for everyone. So that's kind of the backstory. Great. So I wanted to just uh, uh, kick off with the sort of the question on which we maybe founded this podcast, which is, what's your definition of true life success? Um, do you have some kind of, is that a question you ask yourself? And if so, what are kind of the, the composite elements of that? Uh, it is. It's something I ask myself all the time. Uh, the... Um, 
you probably know Josh Brown and Brian Portnoy uh, did a book uh, in 2020. They edited a book in 2020 uh, called How I Invest My Money. Uh, and they asked, uh, I think, 25 of us uh, to write chapters. And uh, the chapter I wrote uh, is a, is a, uh, was included um, a footnote with more specifically how I manage my money, but mostly I talked about um, my purposes for money. And uh, if you don't have, uh, if you don't have your purpose in order, you know, uh, why, why are you here? Now that can be a religious thing, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, and uh, why, what you think your purpose is, what you're trying to accomplish. And I, I, I think about that all the time. Um, and it starts with, it starts with uh, my family. Uh, I have a ninth grandchild on the way. So uh, I'm thinking pretty heavily about the next generation and what that means. Um, but uh, I, I also think about purpose and you'll, it's funny you ask that question today. You will see it uh, in the better letter tomorrow morning uh, if it ends up the way I think it is. My, uh, my internal quarterly digital investment magazine went out about an hour ago. So I have to start the better letter uh, tonight um, after work. But um, what I expect I'm gonna talk about is the power of compounding uh, that's powerful in uh, the investment world, but it's also powerful in life. And I mentioned that in uh, Josh and Brian's book. Um, really, all the best things in our lives compound uh, with, with time and patience being crucial. Uh, good health does that. Investments do that. Uh, most importantly, love does that. Uh, and uh, generosity does that. In all of those things, uh, they're nice, they work, they're helpful. And then if you keep at it long enough and carefully enough, it suddenly explodes into something truly wonderful. And uh, I'm old enough to have seen some real examples of that uh, in my life. Uh, and, and so uh, if, if I can pass to, my to, to the next generation uh, some of the fruits of that, but also the lessons of that, um, that's a pretty good start. So if I can kind of just like maybe go back in a little bit. So if, if we're talking about like success with like, a, you know, a capital S, um, you mentioned purpose. And so it seems as if you're hinting that it's something that's really self-defined. I mean, what Jonathan and I come up against again and again in the show is that we have kind of the external markers of success. So like your bank balance, um, if you're an athlete, the number of medals you won, um, you know, things like that, maybe in university degrees, like specific things that everybody can look at and say, that looks like success. And then there's this whole aspect of like how you define personally what ends up looking like a fulfilling life for you. 
And so I wonder if you could maybe just kind of like make the link between those two things. Cause you know, you mentioned purpose, but like at the same time you use the fine, the vehicle of like financial investing to, you know, become, become successful, I suppose, financially. So how do those two, two things kind of tie together? I think if, if your focus is on external measures, as, uh, you're probably in trouble. Uh, that isn't to say that, that those kind of universal things aren't important. The, uh, you know, the happiness literature that I know Jonathan knows really well, certainly better than I do, uh, suggests that uh, once a certain level of financial success is achieved, uh, more money helps, but it's not nearly the big deal we think it is. Uh, and, um, you know, if you, if you spend your time uh, focusing on, on, on what the neighbors have or what your friends have or what your colleagues have, or even worse, what your competitors have, uh, your life is going to be miserable because there are always going to be people uh, that have it better than you in one way or the other. Um, you know, we, if you've been in this business for, for long, uh, you know people with incredible success by external measures who are miserable. Yeah. And uh, you have to start with what you're after and, and you measure your success uh, mm -hmm. by how well you've, you've gotten what you're after. I love it. I mean, I think that's a wrap. Like that's everything. <laughs> yeah. and we can just stop the interview right here. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think many people still are, well, many people, like 99.99% of us are still hung up on, you know, what my neighbor has. And, and I think that's the big challenge is not, not financializing everything in the world. Um, so a lot, a lot of your writing actually. That's a societal problem too, right? Uh, we've, we've financialized everything. Everything. Not okay. just, not just in terms of, of, measurement, uh, you know, the uh, early, early in the COVID crisis, I wrote about the value of a life because we were talking about at that time from a policy standpoint, whether and how to, how to shut down and how much and what to do it by business. And uh, the, the federal government has specifically done research to value a life in terms of, of what kind outside the context of COVID, uh, whether certain regulation is gonna be required or not based on lives it saved with a, with a presumed value per life. And uh, we do it that way, but, but we turn every asset into money instead of uh, the asset being an asset for its own sake. Yeah. Um, you know, is, is uh, a great painting you own valuable because someone will pay a lot of money for it um, or is it is it valuable because it's beautiful and you love it anyway i interrupted no, but that. i but i think it's it's very interesting i think like the the answer is it kind of is both and like i agree like by living in the system in which we exist today there's a there's a this tendency to like put a price tag on everything mm -hmm. and then measure its value in those terms 
Um, but at the same time, like if I can sort of play devil's advocate and say something for the external markers of success, you know, like having had um, an mm -hmm. athletic background, let's say, like I spend a lot of my life specifically chasing medals. And like when I think about, you know, what those things are worth today, I mean, they're a piece of plastic sitting on the shelf. But like ultimately, like the um, pinnacles of human achievement often end up being on the way to that kind of quest right? Like, I mean, if you're trying to win an Olympic gold medal, like your goal is I'm going to do the best performance necessary to win that medal. And on the way there, you push the package of what's possible for humanity. So, I mean, if one were to then like put that back into the financial world, like, you know, I, I come from a real estate background. And when I look at like some of the investors around me who are doing an amazing job, like part of it's about money, but part of it is about them also just getting really good at what they do. And then money becomes a consequence. So I don't know, like, you know, if we can sort of completely dismiss external markers and say there's no, they, they don't correlate at all with achievement or they're, they're kind of not useful in that sense. I don't know. Well, I, th I think they're useful. Uh, it's the world we live in, right? Um, you know, if, if we made no money, uh, it'd be pretty difficult to, to survive certainly to the, uh, to the, you know, with the lifestyle, uh, at least everyone I suspect who's going to watch this podcast has become accustomed. And, uh, and external markers can be helpful if, if they are, if they are, if you use them to get better, if, if you use them to uh, get new ideas, or simply to test your ideas, right? Um, if, if everyone you read, talk to, think about, uh, looks like you, thinks like you, and does things like you, it's pretty hard to get better. And, uh, you know, all you can do then is just work harder. And if, and if there's something you could be doing better and you don't know about it, you're never going to come close to reaching your potential, whether that's whether that's an Olympic gold medal or uh, being a better parent. I mean, that, that's, there's your better letter for tomorrow. That's compounding, right? It's the, <clears throat> it's the little mini efforts we make to get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better that, that create health, they create better relationships, they create you know, financial success. It all comes from that, I'm committed to getting a little bit better. I think that's, Terry and I talk a lot, uh, talk a lot about that actually in, in our own interviews and, and, and all the time. I want to, I actually want to get to some bias conversation at the same time. I have another, I want to go, I want to pull on one more thread here because we do look very similar. Um, and there's a lot of folks out there that there's inequality in the United States. There's inequality everywhere. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it's front page news. Wealth is having a bit of a moment mm -hmm. in the U S a bit of a decade maybe. Um, and I often wonder, has anyone ever asked, you won't know the answer to this question, has anyone ever asked Jeff Bezos, hey, did you set out to get rich or did you set out to build a, a company that delivers books and that it just expanded? Like you didn't see this going on or do you think he saw this going in and saw that he'd be the first trillionaire? He's not a trillionaire, but you know, um, uh, I, it's, it's interesting that there are people that look at it and say, I want the signifiers of good relationship, the signifiers of, good, of, of wealth. I want that but I'm not willing to put in the work. I'm not willing to make that effort. What do you say to them? Because we're coming from a place where we've, I feel like I've earned 
but I've also been pretty privileged. I've also been very lucky. So how do we communicate across that divide? Well, it's a subject I've, I've written about a lot. Um, and uh, when economists pull apart uh, luck and skill uh, in, for anyone who is successful, uh, luck predominates, right? If, if uh, you mentioned Jeff Bezos, uh, if, if he'd been born in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, he, he would not be number one on the rich guy list. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the, that's the starkest example, but, uh, there are others, uh, my, uh, actually my most popular post ever, uh, talks about, um, birthday luck, I, I call it. And, um, there's, a, there's, there's an idea in some cultures that you have this enormous bit of luck on your birthday, you know, where you can almost do anything. And, and the point I make is I don't, I don't have that really, but I might as well have uh, because I've been so lucky. And um, I, think if, I think the good news is uh, if you recognize how lucky you are, uh, it is easier to uh, try to be humble, uh, which, is, which is really the best place to learn and support others. Um, we, we live in a culture that uh, worships pride and uh, beating your own chest. And anything that can, that can help us counter that a little bit um, is a good thing. That's a, that's a great segue to the bias, overconfidence, et cetera. <laughs> Overconfident, self-serving. Yeah, if, it's, it's if, a word. If something good happens, it's because, boy, was I smart and I worked hard and I got it done, baby. And if something bad happens, it's, oh, man, I was just unlucky. Right. Bad timing. What, would be your, what are your three most often referenced uh, biases that, that you think we walk around and we're not even aware that we, you know, that's the definition of bias. We don't even, we're not even aware that we have this issue. What are the three things to look out for? Well, that's, that's number one. Uh, the biggest one in my view is bias blindness. Uh, we, in theory, we all recognize that we make lots of mistakes that we're wrong about a lot of stuff, at least in our own, in our uh, honest moments, but we can never come up with pertinent examples, right? You know, we're wrong in theory. We're not wrong very often in practice, at least in our own minds. And, and so, uh, and of course, you know, that's partly just obvious because if we thought something wasn't true, uh, we wouldn't believe it. Um, but uh, all of us tend to think that uh, we have no trouble seeing bias in somebody else uh, we just never see it in ourselves. Uh, that's that's the, the biggest one. Um, the other two, if you ask for three, uh, you know, there's the mother of all biases, which is confirmation bias. Uh, we see what we want to see uh, in ourselves and others and in situations and in data and everything else. Uh, and the third is overconfidence. Um, the good news is, 
um, overconfidence is, is helpful in a lot of ways. No one would start a business if they weren't overconfident. Uh, no one would take big chances if they weren't overconfident because the odds are against them. And so that's, that's really important. But boy, is it dangerous too. And, and balancing those two things is particularly difficult. But so if, if I can just poke at something there, I mean, do you think that overconfidence is like a question of a personality trait? Or do you think it's something that we sort of come by, you know, as like a, as a, as a mental decision? Like, like, let me give you, let me explain what I mean. So like, you know, if you're talking about the big five personality traits, right? Like one of the main ones is neurosis. And that has to do with like your capacity to feel negative emotion. And so like, for example, when I did that personality test, like I came up with a very low neurosis score. And one of the caveats that it put after that was like, well, you better watch out that you're not overconfident. I'm like, okay, yes, I do have a tendency to underestimate sometimes the negative potential or consequences that situations might have. And so I wonder if you think some of that is personality or if you think it's mostly like a bad attitude that people come by somehow. Actually, I think most of it is, is entirely natural. We all have it. Uh, natural selection selects for it. Um, because if, if you're not confident, you are less likely to survive. You're less likely to thrive. You're less likely to prosper. And so nature selects for it, but some of us have more of it than others. Um, you know, uh, Kobe Bryant never would have made the last shot if he didn't take the last shot and he wouldn't have taken the last shot if if he wasn't overconfident about it, even though the data says his shooting percentage in those situations is not nearly as high as we remember. The only, I've looked at this a little bit, the only great player who shoots uh, this, the same percentage in clutch situations, depending on how you define clutch, uh, but in clutch situations, as opposed uh, to all the time uh, is Michael Jordan. And even, even he uh, doesn't shoot better in those situations. He just shoots as well. Um, everybody else is significantly lower. Huh. Seriously. Data point. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, well we, think, we think of, of you know, Kobe, the black mamba, right? And uh, takes the last shot, makes the last shot. Well, his, his clutch shooting percentage isn't great. Now, to be fair, right, if everyone in the gym knows he's going to be taking the last shot, he's going to get super great aggressive defense on him. And some of those shots aren't great shots because, you know, the clock's running down, the shot has to be taken. And so he takes it. All true and fair. But he doesn't make as many as you think he does. I want to see Curry's numbers at the end. That's what I want to see. Curry's numbers. Well, given where you live, yeah. <laughs> okay, boys. Okay, boys. Okay, boys. <laughs> Fantastic. And I love to watch it. Oh, it's amazing. And he's having he's having a season too. Oh my God, he's incredible. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. That's a little <laughs> uh, my my youngest would uh uh would go there too. He he went to Berkeley, so um 
yeah, he would he would be all over that. Yeah. Um, but I think if we if we kind of go back at like the, the point that I like that you made in there is this difference between maybe like perceptually what we like what the actual data is and then what we remember about it. Because like if let's say Kobe wins a few big games by taking a very famous shot, we might have a tendency to overestimate his shooting percentage. And as you say, clutch moments. So like I think that's a, a good example of like that kind of bias you were mentioning. Yep. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, okay. So if for the next question, you've uh, written that information is cheap and meaning is expensive. Um, I wonder if you could maybe comment on that or elaborate on it a little bit. Sure. Uh, 150 years ago, informa information was incredibly expensive. Uh, Think about the Civil War, for example. Um, the, the various generals were marching their troops all around looking for the enemy. They didn't have good reconnaissance. They didn't know where the enemy was. And a number of battles were, were happenstance, right? They, they came upon each other and, they, and a little knowledge was super valuable. Um, there's, um, I'm blanking on the battle. It was, it was the big one before Gettysburg that brought about the uh, Emancipation Proclamation in Maryland, Manassas, not Manassas. Um, anyway, uh, the, uh, uh, a sergeant from Indiana found a, uh, a cigar case um, and inside uh, were Lee's orders a copy of Lee's orders and the, uh, the sergeant got it up the chain and it got to McClellan um, and, it, and it changed the battle significantly, even though McClellan still found a way to not take full advantage of it, delayed too long, all the, all the McClellan problems if you care about the Civil War. But he changed his outlook and, and got a victory in what was before Gettysburg, uh, the bloodiest battle in American history. And that bit of information, which told him where the enemy was going to be, um, was, was invaluable. Uh, today, we have far more information than we know what to do with. Uh, information couldn't be cheaper, uh, although it's, it's trying to get cheaper all the time. Uh, and the problem is what to do with the information, with the data, how you interpret it. And in some ways, interpreting the data is harder today because there's so much noise. I'm looking forward to Kahneman's next book, which is going to be about noise and, and how we cut through the noise. You know, in, in his view today, we we overemphasize bias and underemphasize noise. And his view is that noise is the bigger deal. Uh, and, that, and that makes it so difficult for us to, uh, to interpret all the data we have, the data we have and make it, and make it useful, to make it functional. Uh, and, and that's what I mean by meaning is expensive, putting, putting meaning to the information we have is really, really hard. So, okay. There's 
too much data to analyze. We are really bad at making decisions. We're just infected with bias. And we just went through this election cycle in the US um, where truth was the big question, what's real? Uh, you know, how do we know truth? How, is it possible for us to get to truth given the volume of data and how inherently bad we are at looking at data? Well, as it happens, uh, humans have created a fantastic mechanism for determining what's true and that's the scientific method. And uh, it's specifically designed to, to mitigate bias. That's its purpose. And to the extent we use it, um, and it can be used formally and informally, right? You want your plumber to use the scientific method to find out uh, why, your, why your pipes aren't working, uh, at least broadly speaking. Um, then we're gonna be better off. The problem is uh, it, it will tell us what is, but it won't tell us what ought to be. And uh, you know, if you, if you read philosophy in college, you know that's Hume's problem. And it forces us to make value choices. And, and too often we, because we're confident we know what is, uh, we're equally confident about what ought to be, and that isn't necessarily so. So my, my suspicion, to get back to your specific question, is lots of the dispute over what is, is really a dispute over what ought to be. It's the, it's the objection to the policy behind the is statement, not strictly to the is statement. Uh, I think that's the case uh, with climate change, for example. I think it's obvious that the, that the world is getting warmer and that, that humans are contributing to it. But I suspect that much of the objection to it is, is the objection to uh, the, the connection that so many scientists make between the reality of climate change to the necessary policy implications of that, which do not necessarily follow. And in fact, my view is that, is that our best chance for mitigating climate change is through, is through innovation um, rather, than, rather than restriction. Not that some restriction isn't gonna be necessary, uh, but the best opportunity for success, especially without uh, damaging uh, economies, particularly in third world countries, uh, is going to require serious innovation. Um, and so I think if we're, if we're careful to make the is-ought distinction, uh, that will help us. Uh, but I think the bigger problem is simply a matter of trust. Uh, we don't trust experts anymore. And that's largely because uh, and it also relates to is ought that that experts spin with confirmation bias all the time, and so it's easy to catch experts of every stripe and every outlook uh, overstating what they what they know or think they know 
or misapplying it uh, because they're, they're jumping from what uh, they have a high probability of being right about and stuff that either has not nearly that same high probability or which isn't really amenable to probability because it's an is-ought question. And, and, then, and then they never release their confidence. Like they maintain their confidence in That's a right. declining probability environment, right? Correct. That's, I see that all the time. That's, it drives me nuts. Wow. I think I'm going to have to like replay that section and like listen to it again. Cause like, I mean that the, yeah. Anyways, I think, it, I think that was really a, a good, a good segment. Um, I wanted to move on to kind of a different topic. And so like, I'm not as long of a, uh, a, I haven't been reading your stuff for as long as Jonathan. Um, I got into it, you know, when I, I, this interview kind of became in the making. And what I found very interesting is that, so you have like this, you know, uh, a bunch of information that's kind of, you know, financial and sometimes a bit cultural. And then your newsletter tends to end with like a Christian kind of a benediction. And for me, I found that combination of things a little bit unusual because I, in my understanding of a lot of Christian stuff, the quest for wealth gets a bit of a bad rap. And so I find it interesting, like presumably you're on those two trains at the same time. You, you must be on some kind of a spiritual train on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, if you're in the financial services industry, obviously wealth creation is important to you. So do those trains meet for you somehow? Or is there a way to bridge that gap? Or is there not a gap? Am I setting up a kind of like a false dichotomy in my mind there? Well, there's, there is certainly a long... Christian tradition, and, and it's not exclusively Christian, obviously, uh, that, that how you use the wealth you have is of vital importance. Uh, certainly, certainly it is possible to accumulate wealth wrongly, but it is not wealth per se that's wrong. Um, it, it presents problems, uh, but uh, you know, it, it, can, it can influence us into choices we maybe shouldn't make, but uh, there's, there isn't inherent wrongness with wealth per se. Uh, what matters is how you acquire it and how you use it. Um, and, if, and if you acquire it appropriately and use it appropriately, wealth can be a really powerful thing. Um, and you know the the twenty the twenty first century we've already seen uh, uh, some terrific uh, uses of wealth. Um, you know, uh, we talked about Jeff Bezos earlier. His uh, his ex wife Mackenzie has has spent enormous amounts of her money uh, post divorce. Um, on charitable endeavors and has been a, uh, a leading light for everyone with her use of money. Um, and it's very interesting to me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to both praise and criticize at the same time. Lots and lots of rich people have promised uh, to give away most of their money, but almost all of them give it away after they're dead, right? Though they're, they're hanging on to it while they're still alive, 
And I mean, I sort of get it in one sense, right? And the best, the best spin we can put on it is they're using their wealth uh, to take on very serious uh, issues today, whether it's, whether it's providing water to the world or literacy or uh, health issues, all possible. But if, if you're hanging on to it until you're dead, you don't quite get the same points for, for, for giving, giving it away as, as Mackenzie Bezos, and I don't know what, she's remarried now, I don't know what her married name is, the points she gets for giving it away when she could still spend it. Um, and, you know, is that money is really challenging for all of us. Uh, and obviously it's challenging if you don't have enough of it. Uh, it's challenging if your life is a struggle and you have problems and, and misfortunes. Um, it's, a, it's a struggle when you start to do better, uh, how to use it. Uh, if you, uh, I, I wrote about when um, I was, I was uh, my wife and I were newly, newly married and I was in law school and she was teaching school for $6,000 a year. And we were supposed to go home for Christmas uh, to both sets of parents, uh, mine first. And we literally didn't know if we could go because we didn't have the money. And uh, on the last day of school before Christmas vacation, uh, there was an envelope on her desk with $100 in it, uh, which covered the full gas money for us to go and come back. And uh, we, st we still don't know uh, who, who it was that gave it to us, but, if, but Monty, if you're listening, we think it's you. Um, but we don't know. And that has made an incredible impact on us uh, ever since. You know, that's, that's the kind of, kind of thing you wanna pay forward. And in our case, we only could pay forward because we didn't know who to pay back. And, uh, but, then, but then once you've achieved a certain level of success, money provides other problems, right? You have to decide what your priorities are, what you're going to spend it on, and what you're not going to spend it on. Um, and, you know, in the financial world, and you'll see this also, I suspect, in tomorrow's better letter, uh, the financial world is full of people saying something like, we'll give up a latte every day and you can retire rich. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, uh, that can be a powerful lesson about compound interest. On the other hand, uh, it's not crazy to want a, a good cup of coffee um, every day. Um, you know, my wife enjoys that a lot. I don't, but she does. And, and so that, then, we have, then we have those choices to make. And then when, when you get past the, the level um, where, where uh, you know, you're, you're not worried about where your next meal is coming from, then you have to start thinking about uh, 
how you're going to use your money to benefit others. Uh, and, and that's, those are difficult choices too. And, and if I can, if I can help with those choices a little bit, um, I'll feel pretty good about uh, what I've done at the end of the day. Plus those benedictions give me a, give me an opportunity to play more music. Okay. That's the paragraph before the benediction with all the, all the, uh, this, you know, this is the funniest, this is the most mysterious. This is the, that I, that's my, of all the things I read every single week, that is my favorite paragraph. <laughs> uh, it's so fun. Um, so there's a lot of folks today that, that sort of look at things as becoming a little corrupted, you know, Galloway, uh, Scott Galloway, professor Galloway talks about how it's bailouts on the way down. Uh, you know, the most recent example is the airlines. I'm just curious, you know, it seems to me that there is some underlying fervor that is hateful of capitalism at the moment. And I'm a, I'm a huge capitalist. I believe in it. But I also think that it's a reasonable, you know, it's a very, very, very reasonable um, statement to say that it doesn't seem fair. Uh, it doesn't seem like those folks at the top of these companies and those companies are being treated the same way everyone else is being treated. It seems like they're getting kind of a pass. I'm just curious what, what you think about that. Uh, I think you're right. I am, I am a capitalist through and through. Uh, and uh, the old joke about it is that capitalism is the worst system devised except for all the others. And there's truth in it, right? Um, and if you know, you don't have to read a lot of Solzhenitsyn to realize that the other extreme is a whole lot worse. Um, but you're right. If 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 the rule of law, uh, by which I mean uh, rules that that apply fairly to everyone, uh, isn't in place, um, there are going to be enormous problems. Uh, not to mention, uh, you know, there's a famous essay called The Tragedy of the Commons, where it's, uh, it discusses um, what to do about those things that have to be done by everyone together. Um, whether we're, you know, the military is an obvious example, roads are a typical example, Edu public education is often an example. Parks, for example. Um, those aren't strictly speaking capitalist values. Yet uh, the national park system is one of the great American treasures. And, and if Teddy Roosevelt had done nothing else, uh, he would be remembered incredibly well for having done that. And so as a society, we all have to face um, how to handle uh, those kinds of issues, both in terms of, of uh, making sure the rules apply to everyone, uh, even those at the top, and to make sure uh, benefits are, are provided fairly uh, for the common good. Without, um, without undercutting the power of, of capitalism. Uh, 
um, the power of capitalism. Um, and if you're a, you know, if you're a Christian that believes in, in the doctrine of sin, capitalism makes sense because you can count on people to act in their own best interest. Uh, and, and so a system that assumes that is going to be more successful, but that doesn't mean that our sinful nature doesn't need to be tempered. Well, said, put a sir. theological spin on it, but <laughs> just like the end of the newsletter. <laughs> um, I wonder, like, so uh, you know, I like I said, I'm I'm I come more from real estate and less from you know a, a kind of financial market uh, place. Ten times leverage for your for your household money. <laughs> Um, but so, I mean, is there a difference between like, let's say the traditional form of, you know, like Adam Smith type capitalism, like the nation of shopkeepers, that kind of capitalism and the modern brand of investor capitalism that we have today? I mean, you know, in some sense, there's a question of rules not applying fairly to everyone. And I think that that existed throughout human history, however power was carved up, right? Like, let's say in monarchical systems or with aristocracies that are inherited, like those people had one set of rules for them and then everyone else had a different set of rules. But like, if we're talking about like the, the way that the, you know, capitalism as a system functions, are there, I mean, I think there are different brands of capitalism. And so what exactly does our brand of capitalism now, what resemblance does that bear? And then, you know, is there something inherently problematic with that? Well, yes, um, there can be, uh, at, at the risk of, uh, driving people crazy by putting my lawyer hat back on. Antitrust law over the last 30 years has changed uh, significantly. Uh, there used to be two prongs to it, uh, based A, if the consumer is damaged, or B, if, if we have created uh, entities with monopoly power. And the second one in the law has mostly been done away with. So if if you, if you gather monopoly power, but the consumer benefits, it's difficult to, to succeed in an antitrust case. And I think that's a mistake. Um, and it's something Congress could probably agree on if, if they weren't all performing all the time for the cameras instead, and instead did some actual legislative work, but that's a different story. Um, but, but also, uh, I think, yes, the world is different, um, the, but I think we will start to see uh, some natural changes and that amongst the most fascinating pieces of research I've seen over the last five years is by a physicist named Jeffrey West who wrote a book called Scale. And he looked at uh, how uh, cities grow and he expanded it to, to companies and other entities. And he found that cities get more efficient as they grow, uh, they get faster and uh, they, can, they can support more. Companies on the other hand, grow sublinearly. They do not continue to get more efficient as they grow. Once they've hit critical mass, they start to get less efficient as they grow. And I've hypothesized that, that the reason uh, we 
no companies seem to be able to uh, kick through the trillion dollar barrier, barrier in market cap is they just get less efficient. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I think we see that. I used to joke when I worked on, worked on the street uh, that, that if, if, a, if a merger was announced seven times out of 10, it was because uh, at least one of the companies wasn't going to make their quarterly number. And so they wanted, a, they wanted a merger so they could point to synergies, throw all their crap into that release and uh, say that the synergies will make it up and, and they'd have a, at least a year of clear sailing with lousy numbers as, as, the, as the merger, which typically didn't help very much um, while they sorted that out. But I think we've, we've seen over time that bigger is not necessarily better. And, and in fact, my working hypothesis about the small cap premium is that it's a matter of scale, uh, not a matter of risk. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I think it's frustrating to have to wait for nature to take its course, so to speak. And, I, and I'm not advising that, but I think there are reasons to think uh, uh, size in fact does matter. I think, I think that's a good closing note, actually. <laughs> I think you did that a purpose, actually, Bob. That's uh, great. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and um, I look forward to staying in touch and reading the better letter tomorrow. Thanks. I appreciate your having me. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for listening. Whether you tuned in while you were taking a walk or maybe doing the dishes or whether you were sitting at your desk and diligently taking notes, I hope you get something out of this conversation. And when you go back into the world, perhaps you focus a little bit less on those external markers of success. Or maybe you'll be able to see the ways in which you've been lucky. Or you might be able to better tell when it's the biases that are talking. I know that I'm going to remember that everyone struggles with money. However much money one can access, there's a struggle that comes along with that amount of money. I'm sure Bob's going to agree with me when I say that uh, I'd rather deal with having more than having less, but we can all be a little bit more aware that we don't know someone else's experience. Thanks again for listening. I hope you subscribe and maybe go back and listen to this one again, and then be sure to tune in to our next episode. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating and leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Jonathan at mindful.money, and you'll find Terry at terryshower.com. Their books, Mindful Money and Mindful Landlord, are available on Amazon. Look to the show notes for our guests' contact info and any links discussed in today's episode.